Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I will be discussing the concept of joint stability. When I was in physical therapy school, it didn't seem to me that the concept of joint stability was explained very well. There was a general notion that people understood intrinsically what joint stability meant when it was explained in technical terms, and that was certainly fine in terms of the technical description. But I found that it didn't really translate well, especially when talking with patients about what it actually meant for them. We might explain to them, for example, that part of their problem involves joint instability. Part of the fix, therefore, involves stabilizing the joint. But at that point, this is where the explanations break down as presented academically. How exactly do we achieve the desired effect of stabilization training? Well, that really depends, at least in part, on the definition of joint stability. White and Punjabi describe tensegrity as the underlying concept of spinal stability. This is the idea of a balance of forces required to maintain the integrity of the spinal column. Separately, Punjabi describes the concept of the neutral zone, which the underlying range of motion, joint play, if you will, that occurs before tension or compression builds on mechanoreceptors that signals movement is occurring. And other biomechanists talk about the instant axis of rotation around which proper joint motion occurs. These are very precise, wonderful, and completely serviceable definitions produced by these different groups. And the different definitions abound, but from a practical standpoint, I prefer following the following, and, and it's one that I use. A stable joint moves or remains stationary in a task-dependent manner without incurring injury. That's the best you can hope for, and this is a definition patients can relate to. It suggests functionality that is pain-free. Both are good targets to aim for. When we break this definition down, we see that it involves really several elements, and we'll talk about each of these in turn. First, joints must be stable under two conditions. One is when the joint is moving, and two is when the joint is not moving. In the first case, this is referred to as dynamic stability, and in the second case, it's referred to as static stability. Dynamic equals what happens to the joint during motion of that joint, in other words, does it move through a normal range of motion, with good joint congruency, with good transfer of loads and dissipation of forces? Static equals what happens to a joint when loads are applied, but the joint is not moving. Similar to the dynamic addition, the joint and its related structures must manage load. This means controlling and dissipating forces that might otherwise be damaging. So that's a brief description of static and dynamic properties of stability. In both cases just described, we are also talking about another property known as intrinsic stability, or the ability of the neural control subsystem aided by the muscular system to produce, detect, and control motion and loading conditions so that the purposeful movement can occur and injury does not happen. And here by purposeful, we mean functional. In this type of intrinsic stability, or rather, if this type of intrinsic stability cannot be achieved, it must be aided by extrinsic stability. In other words, outside forces or structures not generated by the body intrinsically must be deployed to achieve stability. In some cases, this is temporary, such as use of a brace. And in some cases, this is permanent, such as surgery that may or may not afford the desired stability. 
Finally, stability is dependent upon the structural components of anatomy and the functional components of how the anatomical systems interact, i.e. the neuromusculoskeletal system. If the anatomy is damaged, your patient has structural instability. If movement causes damage, the joint isn't stable. Some common examples of this are torn annular ligaments in the lumbar spine or a ruptured ACL. The movement constraints normally imposed by the intact ligaments and the sensory components of the ligaments plus the downstream effects of their injury, such as, but not only, swelling and loss of proprioception, lead also to functional instability. It's important to note that functional instability may be acquired through other means that are not currently thought of as pathological. No structures are damaged. This is often an insidious problem that appears without known injury. An example of this would be a highly trained athlete who has been away from their sport for some time. For a baseball pitcher, for example, their throwing mechanics will be off. They will not be as fast, strong, and efficient, and the accuracy of their pitches will decrease. For a sedentary office worker, balance and lumbar spine instabilities can be detected, which are risk factor markers of asymptomatic developing problems. Even something as simple and common as ambulation can suffer from acquired functional instability. This is due to lack of exposure. Skilled movements are perishable skills. They must be maintained. Not doing so leads to diminished motor cortex and somatosensory representation. Furthermore, if these skills are competing for space in the brain with pain, then decline in motor performance is inevitable. Functional instability gets worse. That gets differently complicated, and that discussion is for another time. So the main takeaways from today's talk about what we mean by joint instability, number one, there are different types and conditions of joint stability. So know which one or ones you are talking about. Two, some of the important ones to know are static and dynamic, intrinsic and extrinsic, structural and functional. Know the differences. And last, a clear and simple definition of joint stability is a stable joint moves or remains stationary in a task-dependent manner without incurring injury. May you and your patients be well. That's all for today.